Welcome to Securing Our Future, a podcast exploring how commercial and national security sectors work together to accelerate innovation. In each episode, we sit down with industry leaders, government officials, leading academics, and more to delve into the latest advancements and challenges in all areas related to our nation's future. This podcast is a publication of New North Ventures. Join us as we engage in insightful conversations with experts from the private and public sectors. To stay updated on the latest episodes and receive additional resources, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at securingourfuture.us. Today we have Jim Smith, former acquisition executive for the United States Special Operations Command, where he managed over $6 billion annually in support of global special operations. He has over 30 years of experience in government acquisition and is committed to a robust industrial base and vibrant technology sector in support of our national defense. Previously, he served as an infantry officer in multiple leadership positions before transitioning to Army acquisition. He led the development, procurement, and the fielding of state-of-the-art technologies. Following 27 years as an Army officer, he was appointed to the Senior Executive Service and served for 10 years in Special Operations Command. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Well, thanks. It's great to be here, Jeremy. Jim, I'd love to, if you would take us through a bit of your background. You are one of the, the people that holds on to all the gold, formerly, all the gold in, in the Department of Defense as an acquisitions executive. Tell us like how you got there. Yeah, it was a circuitous route in some ways, and in some ways it was very linear, but, but all fun. I started off as an infantry officer in the Army and had a really enjoyed my infantry career. And I did that for about 13 years, which is longer than the typical acquisition officer. Most in the Army, the model is, you know, officers uh, be- become that at, at, the, at their seventh to ninth year of service. I stuck around in the infantry for a little bit longer than most. And, and quite frankly, one of the things I hope we talk about is the operator's impact on the acquisition process. And I think that gave me a little bit more empathy for the operator, maybe, that's staying with the, with the uh, operational units a little bit longer. But at the about the 13 year mark, I was I happened to be teaching at the Academy of Mechanical Engineering, and I was really enjoying the technology aspects of of what our what our army at that time needed, and uh, and had a really good master's experience, and thought, hey, maybe there's more I can do, for in, in support of the army. So I, I asked about acquisition and was uh, able to assess into the army's acquisition corps about the 13 year mark. And then really had some great assignments, mainly working on soldier level technologies. I was in PEO soldier multiple times, uh, worked in the Pentagon, which was absolutely frustrating, but also absolutely crucial. Learning how the big army, the corporate army, and really the joint force works was a crucial part for me. And then after after that, one of my last assignments uh, in uniform was I went down to MacDill Air Force Base to work as a program executive officer for Special Operations Command. And fully expected that was going to be a typical Army assignment, three years, but, but really enjoyed special operations. And when I got the opportunity to stay with special operations, all, although it meant making the very hard decision to take off the uniform and stay as a civilian, I left at the chance and stayed as the deputy director of acquisition for a number of years. And then when the acquisition executive departed, was was selected to be the next acquisition executive. So my final assignment, which I just left about this summer, was as the acquisition executive for U.S. Special Operations Command and had a chance there to really learn about and execute acquisition on behalf of our uh, special operations. 
Now there's a couple things in there. I'd love for you to help us through acquisitions in special operations command is a kind of a unique beast because it is both a command and also has an acquisition authority. Love to hear how that plays out, but also what day to day, what is a, what is an acquisitions executive or what does an acquisitions leader do inside of department of defense? Yeah, that's great. So if I could take the first part of the question first, special operations is unique and, and you said it exactly right. It's this dual-headed entity that's got both an operational role as a functional combatant command, and I'm sure global combatant command, which is probably a better term there, but for special operations and global um, countering weapons of mass destruction, countering terrorist activities, working in the information environment, uh, all the things that special operations does so well on an operational side in support of the geographic combatant commands. But then also in 1987, when the command was stood up, Congress had a really, I think in my mind, a brilliant stroke where they just penned in, hey, and the commander of U.S. Special Operations Command will have acquisition authority and the staff of the command will have an acquisition executive responsible to the commander under the authorities of the defense acquisition executive for soft, peculiar equipment and services. And that's a really key phrase responsible to the commander. If you think about our service acquisition executives, Army, Navy, Air Force, they are responsible to the secretary of the Army, Navy, Air Force. What the decision to make the acquisition executive directly responsible to the commander gave the command a much more operational energy and and focus to the acquisition battle space, if you will. Under the authorities of defense acquisition executive is a key phrase too, because it means that we did, we did, and they're doing now real acquisition. It wasn't like there was some special, don't look behind the tarp, don't look under the poncho liner. We're doing things different here because we were operating in secret. It was really by the book, defense acquisition, just operated it on behalf of an acquisition command. But to answer your question about day-to-day acquisition, that was really the role, the real of the role of the acquisition executive. I think it's fairly similar for the ser- similar for the services is it's not so much getting down into the individual contracts and getting down into the individual technologies, although there is some of that. Certainly, sometimes the technology is either so important or the program itself is so much on the line in terms of whether a congressional interest or bleeding edge technology or industry interest, you might get very much involved in the details. But really, it's, it's like a lot of other CEO position type positions where you got to find the right people, you got to give them the right tools, you got to backstop them with the right amount of uh, risk tolerance and, and let them do their job. And so again, there, there is a very deliberate acquisition process in the government. So you want to make sure that you're giving your folks the, the, the right left and right boundaries so no one's getting themselves in trouble. But within that left and right boundary, you got to know that they've got space to run and that if they err, if they stumble, if they get close to that boundary, you've got their back. That, to, to me, that was the role of the acquisition executive. No, it's neat. And you talked about the risk taking, probably both a pushing and pulling, where sometimes you, you want acquisition programs to, to push further. Sometimes you want them to pull back. How did you think about prioritization and just keeping people current with what the art of the possible is, thinking about a program? There's, there's obviously a lot of stones that get thrown at acquisitions, probably in you know armchair quarterbacking all day long. People love to do it. But really, in the end, there's a lot of good work that does take place. There's a lot of care and balance on how that works. And I'm, I'm curious how you internalized both that stress and also that 
level of, hey, have to deliver on capabilities that are needed today, but also think through programming for the future. Yeah, no. <laughs> and Jeremy, we got we to be careful here because I could talk for the rest of our time on, on this topic by itself. <laughs> it's it's, a, it's an area that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, but this whole idea of of risk. And so for acquisition professionals, you often talk about risk in terms of, is it risk to schedule? Is it risk to cost? Is it risk to performance? Um, and I would add to that, between cost, schedule, performance, I would also ask security, add security. I think sometimes we don't think enough about the how secure our programs are and whether or not adding more security, especially like in a software environment, is going to add cost or schedule or impact performance. But it's a fourth, in my leg, my mind, it's a fourth leg of a, not a triangle, but a quadrilateral. And so how do you balance those? And I, when I was talking to my folks about risk, really, we'd have two conversations. The first conversation about would be about whose risk is it? Because there's a danger for acquisition professionals to think that they own a risk that in actuality translates to our operators. And so ensuring that we understood when we were slipping a program to the right, maybe schedule-wise, or we were going to just go at the very threshold of a performance level, really what was the operational risk? What, how did that fit into Special Operations Command's overall plan? And that was really the value, I think, in, in a lot of ways of the Special Operations environment. But this is a thing that scales to the services as well, I believe, is that sometimes understanding the operational imperative for something will have you cause you to take a different look at risk than, than, than maybe you would if you were just schoolhouse looking at, at a piece of paper and to trying to determine what the risk was. And we're really fortunate in the Special Operations Command environment, um, or we, we were fortunate, or they are fortunate, I should say. I'm, I'm having a hard time still not using the first person when it comes to Special Operations Command, but I'll, I'll, I'll get used to it. But uh, you know, the operators are so involved in the process, and that's that was the great thing. And again, I'm not this is something the services can certainly do. The operators for special operations, is, as I'm sure your audience knows, they're at least probably three-time volunteers. They volunteered to come in the service. They volunteered to go through some level of assessment, and they volunteered for a lot of our specialty training, whether it's jumping out of airplanes or learning how to scuba dive in, in, in very harsh conditions or whatever the case might be. So they are, they're amazing individuals. And they're, so, therefore, they've got some – they've typically been around longer. Um, they are typically folks that are in for a career. Um, they've got more education in, in most cases than an average military personnel. They've got more deployments in many cases. And they certainly, as, as taxpayers, we've put a lot more into their training in, in many cases. And we benefited from that. So I, I guess coming back to the idea of risk, you really had a, a great input on risk from the operators because the operators are taking risks every single day or managing risks every single day in an operational environment. and that culture of managing risk operationally translated back into the acquisition workforce of how and how they approached it. And I thought that was a unique thing. The other thing about risk is trying to ensure that everybody was thinking about opportunities in the same breath that they were thinking about risk. Because there's two sides of that coin, right? You can think about all the things that can go wrong with the program and, and figure out ways to mitigate that. And that's very important. We tried to establish a culture where it's equally important to think about all the things that could go exceptionally well for the program and how do you set the conditions that those could happen. So having a culture where anytime someone mentions the word risk, you also ask them about opportunities and try to make sure that we're balancing that coin down the path was, I think, something we, should be, we worked really hard to do. 
That makes sense. And there were a couple of interesting things that you did in, in, in your most recent couple of roles. One was a bunch of your outreach to the venture capital community, which is one of the reasons why we know of each other. Uh, also on adopting and just thinking about how to adopt AI, peculiar technologies. And I'm curious on the VC side, how did that come to pass? Yes. When you think about what the VC community is doing, and when you think specifically about dual use, because dual dual use just makes perfect sense. It's it's a win as an acquisition professional. Being a, being a little bit parochial, when I think about dual use, I think, boy, if 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 I can adopt a technology that's already got a foundational use in the commercial space, my risk to performance comes down. My costs are probably coming down. My risks to schedule are probably coming down. And to be fair to my previous comment, there's probably a, a, a many opportunities there as well. So I was intrigued by the idea of dual use. The And I watched DOD make several attempts with venture capitals. And, you know, and I thought my, I guess my proposition was that SOCOM, Special Operations Command, did have the agility and the flexibility to work with venture capitals in a way that maybe DOD could not just then, this and this again, as you and I mentioned before we started this this part of the talk, this is probably five years ago, and so venture capital was a little bit of a newer concept then, and our relationship with the Department of Defense was a little bit different uh, then as well. And so, but Jeremy, to be fair and to be humble, we haven't achieved the success I think that we still can with the venture capital community. There has to be a better melding of schedules in terms of timelines and expectations for timelines. There has to be a better melding of end state expectations with both sides. And I think there has to be a better melding of, of, of return on investment expectations for both sides. And I, I just don't think we're there yet, but uh, but I, I remain extremely optimistic. And you know, I'm not playing to the audience here, but especially venture capital entities like New North, where you know, you've know made a, a mission statement to say, hey, we want to work with the, the, the Department of Defense and the IC community, and we want to bring new technologies, especially forward. And I think that's really important to where the, where the country needs to go. It's a well-played hand at this point that we're not going to be able to do it the in the old way of new technologies being invented in a government lab now there's now, listen there's still a place for that there's still there's there because there's a lot of use technologies that are not they're single use technologies that the dod needs and the commercial space doesn't need and so we still need that but it's the idea of getting dual use technologies into our operators hands faster better and more efficiently than our adversaries can is extremely important to me yeah, and, and definitely I'm a big proponent of, of dual-use technologies, things where you have both public sector, these big audacious, let's go accomplish this goal, and then you have private sector, you have innovation, and can think of how, how can you how can you drive continuous improvement, sometimes uh, larger market spaces. Um, but it's it, agree that it's still early innings, I think, on that collaboration space and increasing that, uh, that, that way in which there's that back and forth, and, and certainly excited to... Uh, Keep seeing how it goes. Won't always like I like the mixing of risk and opportunities um, because I do think that we're both trying to figure each other out. But it's early successes are are certainly some things we can point to already and look forward to putting some more things up on the board. Yeah, I think you know, and on that point, it's, you you bring up a really good point there. I, you know, this idea that we both have the same end state in terms of scale. You you, you want to get 
You want to get a concept to a prototype and a prototype to a product and a product to scale. And that's really where the venture capital community gets their return on investment. But that's also, it's not, to me, it's not always obvious. We, there's a lot of splash and a lot of, of, of claiming victory when we get development contracts with some of these commercial technologies. But to me, the, 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 the payoff is when we actually get it to scale and we get it to operators' hands in numbers, in production, uh, et cetera. And to me, um, maybe on the government side, we're claiming too much success early in the process when, it, when in fact, we've got to shepherd these technologies all the way to the end state uh, where, where they're in operators' hands at scale. Yeah, definitely agree with that. And I think one of the places where, where venture capitalists can be helpful, and I think one of the places where it's been discussed is we're, we're okay with risk. Uh, we play a probability game and you know, we have, have a portfolio of companies and not all of them work. We'd love it if all of them work, but uh, obviously that's not the case. Uh, and, and so that's one of the things that, that we enjoy. Uh, we also, I think, share, especially with the special operations community, looking for asymmetric advantage. And so that is another one where it's been the, the conversations off to the side of the hallway discussions. There's a lot of similarities with how can you find unfair advantage in markets? products, technologies to exploit market inefficiencies, very similar speak to probably uh, the community that that, uh, that, that, you're, that you're most recently coming from. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think, again, this idea that if, you're, if your end state is scale, the DOD calculation of risk is much different as you move left through right of that. We'll take a lot of risk in the concept stage, in the science technology stage, and our, our labs and our science technology dollars are going after some really really difficult concepts and we're fishing a lot of holes and we're trying a lot of things to to find some success there. And so there's risks, there's a risk acceptance on the left-hand side of the life cycle that is far different and probably degrades fairly rapidly as you start to move. I think the DOD does not have a very high tolerance once you get into what's called the program of record stage for failure. And I think that's something we have to work on too. There, there's some, there's something to be said for a good concept, maybe not a good product, but a good concept deserves some risk tolerance, even after we've started investing some, some dollars in it. And, I, and to me, that's where the risk tolerance in the DOD really, you really come under scrutiny <laughs> as a program manager when you fail a test. And that's not always a bad thing, right? That when you fail a test, you can learn an awful lot from failing a test, but scrutiny is not a bad thing either. So there's, but there's a balance. There, there always is a balance. Uh, switching gears a bit, you've written about the, the use of artificial intelligence data inside of adoption area. And I think one of the points of view you had is, hey, we're not going to set up an AI-centric, whether it was a, a program office or the like, but you, you really thought of it as something embedded in, in a lot of the workflows and a lot of the things. Certainly people can can think of, even in soft peculiar, they think hardware, they think of equipment, but Curious to hear you're thinking of how is AI transforming the work that acquisitions professionals are doing and also the, the role that operators are, are faced with? I'm glad you asked that because interestingly, back at our last big industry conference back in May or, or soft week as it's now called, I got up there and I gave, out, <laughs> gave about an hour and a half speech or what it felt like an hour and a half at least. And I don't think, I think I mentioned AI in there, but afterwards during the question and answer period, I made the comment that uh, no, I think AI is the tide that's going to ride all rise all boats. Uh, excuse me, rise all boats. 
And that got the most reaction from the media. And it was funny. And of course, at that time, and, and still today, there's a buzz in the media about whether AI is evil or not. And I probably should have caveated my remarks. So I'll take the opportunity now to caveat my remarks. But I know there is danger to AI. I absolutely know that. But I think we, as we develop AI and we develop the ethical and safe use of AI, it will absolutely be ubiquitous. It'll be in everything we do. It, and the reason I didn't want to stand up an organization that was you know, dedicated to AI, it's just because I, I wanted my, the, again, my, I wanted the program executive officer for Fixwing to be thinking about how AI could improve their, their capabilities and the program executive officer for Maritime to be thinking about how AI, how AI could improve their capabilities. And really even more importantly, thinking about artificial intelligence in end state, we as a DOD, and we're getting better because we've, we've gone through the 12-step process and the first stop, step of acknowledging we have a problem, we know that we've got a data problem. But I wanted my program executive officers all to be thinking about where's my data coming from? What is my contract relationship with the vendor when it comes to data? What am I doing with the data? How am I storing the data? These are all things that we weren't naturally thinking of just several years ago. And if we're ever going to be proficient with AI, the first step is going to be having a really good relationship with our industry base and ourselves, quite frankly, when it comes to data. I didn't think there'd be any more use in a PEO for a program executive officer for AI than there would be, say, for a program executive officer for energy. Everyone needs all of our things need energy. And that's how I think of artificial intelligence, quite frankly, with all the proper caveats that as we develop it, it's got to be safe, it's got to be ethical, et cetera. But I do think it's absolutely critical. And We've come a long way, I think, as a government. I'll use the first person there. We've got some great folks that are helping us get educated on artificial intelligence and data fabrics, et cetera, that, and, and how to use those and what that means for our products. And so our con- and that, that's got to filter all the way down to our contracting officers and our young program managers that they can have intelligent conversations with the industry base and the vendors. Because as, as you all know, every vendor comes in claiming that they've got AI as well. And you've got to, you've got to be able to smoke that out uh, and find out really where, where that is. You asked about how you could use that for acquisition. It, it's fascinating. I really think in that the place where artificial intelligence might get its first and, and, and most important foothold could be in the business side of the house for the government. You know, how are we applying artificial intelligence to look at the efficiency of, a, of, of one budget um, plan versus another budget plan or one acquisition strategy versus another acquisition strategy, because there's a lot of data there. there. There's We have a lot of data on the business side of the house, personnel moves, et cetera. We were using artificial intelligence pretty efficiently when it came to preventive maintenance in our helicopter fleet. And so that that's an area where I think we really could become very proficient. Large language models. We spend a lot of time on the acquisition side of the house writing new contracts. How much of that could be facilitated by leveraging large language models for our contracting officers? I think there's great opportunity space there that we haven't delved into yet. And what is the culture? Is the culture one that when a contracting officer said, hey, I saved four days because I used a large language model to to develop this contract, and then spent the last, you know, spent the last half a day making sure that everything was exactly right, and we were still doing the best thing in terms of the government and the taxpayer and the operator. What would be the reaction to that? You used a commercial large language model. Would we salute that? 
contracting officer for initiative, or would we uh, scrutinize that contracting officer for taking a shortcut? And I'm hoping that the culture evolves very quickly to, you know, you are right on, you're being innovative, you're taking appropriate risk because there's opportunity there and, and getting to the end state that's best for our operators. There's a lot of changing and it's certainly fun, even in venture, thinking about all the pitch decks we receive and the, the analysis that we go through and, and we joke a lot, is it going to replace partners or, or associates faster? And I, I don't know which one it is. <laughs> there's opportunity for both. And, and it certainly as a tool has been interesting to try to embrace this past past few years, all being database. I guess switching gears to in spirit of wrapping up and also to, to some of the startups and companies that are paying attention and listening to this, what advice do you have for founders who are interfacing with acquisitions professionals? What are the things that pet peeves that they should not do? What are the things that they should do? Yeah, I think biggest piece of advice is don't fall into the trap of the incremental success. Um, The government, to a certain extent, is pretty good about incremental successes. Hey, we're good. We're going to get you on contract for a white paper. We're going to get you on contract for that first prototype. We're going to get you on contract for this next 12 months. Make sure that you understand from your government counterpart what the long-term strategy is. If there is a long-term strategy, is there funding for a long-term strategy? Is there a plan to take your technology and advance it all the way to that scale? I mean, we talked about concept, prototype, product, scale. To me, those are all, you know, people talk about valleys of death. To me, those are all peaks of opportunity, but you need someone on the government side that has the vision to get all the way to scale. And they're thinking about your individual company as trying to get to scale. That would be like my my first ask for the company, for that entrepreneur. Hey, make sure you understand what the end state is and that the government has a plan for you. Um, And then if not, you know, maybe work work together on a plan. We're, We're collaborative collaboratively on one. Just the other thing is, and I would, this is your pet peeves, et cetera. There's a few, and I'm sure they're on both sides. When I talk to our contracting officers and our young program managers, the biggest peeve is answering the question. Just answer the question. We don't often care about what we refer to as a lot of boilerplate about your founding, your founder story or who's on your board or things of that nature. We're, we are really share a, you know, a, a common goal of we, we want to get you on contract. We want the best team on contract. Um, we want to have a competitive process that results in the best team on contract. So answer the question, answer the mail in as clear text and as clearly as possible. Show us why you have a competitive advantage. Um, understand what the government's looking for. Understand what, what the government values. Hopefully, sometimes there's a contract that's a low price, technically acceptable, and that's okay for some things. But it's probably not good, especially for the companies in your portfolio, which you're looking for from a contract standpoint is the best value trade-off where the government's telling you, hey, we will we'll pay more for this performance, for this management team, et cetera. And so make sure you understand that. What, what is the government willing to pay for and what do they really value? And, and because at the end of the day, it's really what the operator values. And that's who we hope to team with. Awesome. Thanks for your insights, Jim. It was a pleasure having you. And Jeremy, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much. Look forward to future conversations. Thanks for joining the Securing Our Future podcast brought to you by New North Ventures.
Stay up to date on dual-use innovation in augmented intelligence, digital authenticity, and cyber integrity by subscribing to our newsletter at newnorthventures.com. Prior thinking is that you can either make a lot of money or do right for the country. Now we can and must do both as there are incredible opportunities for outsized returns from both a financial and national security perspective.